Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 19 and read down through verse 25. This will be our our text of Scripture for this morning. Hebrews 10, 19, the author of Hebrews begins with these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So Lord, let us listen this morning to hear from you truth that will last way beyond this age, and let our hearts be submissive to what we hear, and let us grow in love for you, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we are picking up in our series that we began in June on the topic of church membership, and the series hit an unfortunate delay. Uh, there was This block of sermons was uh, supposed to be finished uh, in June, uh, which is just part of this series, uh, but then I got sick and then uh, went on vacation, so I only made it through the first three sermons of the first four, which is the first block. And so hopefully the two-week delay that we've had uh, won't affect us in the flow of our, of our, of our service this morning, or of our, of our studying of this topic, uh, but rather hopefully we can dive back into it and, uh, and pick up as if we, we had been here just last week. Uh, because it's been two weeks since we've been in this particular uh, topic or this particular series, I think a little bit of review is, is necessary. So we began, you'll remember, or maybe not, uh, we began in this series by answering the question, is church membership in the Bible? And while we noted that you won't find a command to become a member of a church, that the concept is all over the New Testament. So we began by considering the various passages that describe the concept of membership. And after considering the evidence, here's what we concluded. At the very least, we can say that a formal relationship existed 
between a church and an individual Christian, and that both the church and the individual were aware of this relationship and the responsibilities that came with us, or that came with it. And I hope we can all agree, at the very least, that that's what the New Testament teaches. If we don't agree that that's what the New Testament teaches, we're going to be pretty far apart on our understandings of of church membership. Now, once we established the fact that membership exists in the New Testament, we moved on to consider then the meaning of church membership. And the definition we've been using has four parts and we've looked so far at the, three, the first three parts of it. We'll finish our definition this morning. But here's the definition we've been using. Church membership is a formal relationship, or sometimes called a covenant of union, between a particular church and a Christian that consists of three things. Number one, the church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession. Number two, the church's promise to give oversight to the Christian's life of discipleship. And number three, the Christian's promise to regularly assemble with and submit to the church. Okay, so church membership is a formal relationship or a covenant. Uh, we, we equated it to or compared it to marriage, a marriage relationship. And the first aspect of this formal relationship is the church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession. So when a church brings someone into their membership, here's what they're saying. As far as we can tell, based on your profession of faith and your life of obedience, we recognize you to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, and so we welcome you into our our membership. The second aspect of this relationship is the church's promise to give oversight to the Christian's life of discipleship. And this is where we were in our last study, that the the church as a whole, not just the pastors, but the church as a whole, has the responsibility to invest in one another until, Ephesians 4 says, we attain to the unity of the faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And and every member is responsible to to watch over and care for the, the, uh, the other members to make sure we reach this goal of maturity. Now, this morning, we'll cover the third aspect of this relationship, where the Christian then promises to regularly regularly assemble with and submit to to the church. Now, if you think about it, this third aspect is really just the flip side of the second aspect, right? The second aspect, the church promises to oversee the Christian's life of discipleship, And the flip side of that is then the Christian promises to put his or her life under the care of the local church, under its leaders and under its fellow members. So it's this idea this morning, the the believer submitting to and, 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 and assembling with the local church that we want to unpack in our passage today. And I pray that this study will be beneficial and fruitful as we continue to work through this concept of church membership. So we're here in Ephesians. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, and I hope you're still in Hebrews chapter 10. And before we go into this passage of Scripture, a little bit of background is necessary on the book of Hebrews. So let's begin with a little bit of background. The author, who is unknown to us, is writing to Jewish Christians who have been saved out of a life of Judaism and saved into a life of faith in Christ. And because of their faith in Christ, they are facing 
significant consequences. They are being persecuted. They are losing their possessions. Some are even in prison for the sake of Christ. And if you skip down to verse 32, you begin to see their situation summed up. So notice in verse 32, he says this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened or after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Well, that's an insightful passage, is it not? To give us insight as to what these believers were facing. Some were in prison. Some who had relationships with those in prison. They were being publicly ashamed, or publicly shamed and losing their possessions all because, of faith, all because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's safe to say they were not experiencing their best life now. Now, because of these hardships, the temptation, as we can understand it, was to return to their former life in Judaism. And many were making that choice. If they returned to their life of Judaism, things would be much easier. They wouldn't have to face these consequences or these imprisonments. However, doing so meant forsaking Christ. And so the author writes this urgent letter of Hebrews, and he essentially does two things in this book. Number one, he he spends much of the book unpacking a series of arguments showing that Christ is better than than any of the, the old covenant and the old system of worship. One example is he goes into detail about how the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin, but Christ has fully and completely accomplished the redemption necessary for our forgiveness. And it would be foolish to return to that. So that's one thing that he does. He makes this argument about the superiority of Christ. But then the second thing he does in this book is that he then turns and exhorts these believers to persevere in the faith, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, who himself faced hardship but looked to the joy ahead of him and endured the, the suffering. And he wants these believers to do the same. So this is the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. My, my former professor summed it up this way. Don't give in. Jesus is better. And that's the message of the book of Hebrews. Now our passage that we're considering this morning, verses 19 to 25, it's, it's, a, it's a transition in this book. There's a, there's a turn happening right here in these verses before us. The turn is from the section where the author is explaining the superiority of Christ over the old system of worship, and now it turns to the portions where he's, exer- where he's exhorting these believers to persevere in the faith. There, this passage is a threshold, if you will, moving from the previous discussion to a new discussion about the finished work of Christ. And this passage, it unfolds nicely for us in, a, in an organized fashion. Okay, you'll notice in this passage that there are two foundational truths and there are three exhortations. 
Okay, and I'll show these for you as, you bre- as we break it down. Right, there are two foundational truths in this passage, and I want you to notice the word since and how it appears two times. Okay, so he says this in verse, in verse 19. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Okay, so that's foundational truth number one. We'll come to it. But then he says in the next words, and since, foundational, number, foundational truth number two, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Okay, so he's given these two foundational truths. And in light of this, these two foundational truths, since and since, he moves on to give three exhortations in the passage. And each one of these exhortations begins with the words, let us. So you see in verse 22, he says, okay, since these things are true, then number exhortation number one, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's exhortation number one. Exhortation number two is in verse 23. Let us then hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Exhortation number two. Then exhortation number three is found in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So that's how the passage breaks up for us. Two foundational truths and three exhortations. Now, I have to admit that I feel a little bit conflicted this morning because this is an amazing passage. If you get the time to just study verses 19 to 25, I I think your heart will be richly blessed. And I'm conflicted because I'd like to just unpack the entire passage Uh, But really, our focus is verses 24 and 25 in relationship to the discussion on membership this morning. So here's what we'll do. I'll touch on verses 19 to 23, but our focus this morning will be on the third exhortation that he gives in verses 24 and 25. So let's begin with, with with the foundational truths that he gives, these two foundational truths in this passage. A familiar passage in verse 19 and you, you know these words and perhaps know this verse well, but he begins with these words. Therefore, brothers. And it's obvious what he's doing in verse 19. He is looking backward to everything that he has just said. Okay? He's looking backward to all that he has said about the old covenant, about the old style of worship. Just as, as an example, turn back to chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, and here's the kinds of things that the author has been arguing really since, since chapter 5, okay? I'll read this extended portion, I'll do so quickly, but, but here's the kind of arguments the author has been making. He says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared for the first section in which, we were, in which were the lampstands and the table, the bread of presence that is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place, having the, golden, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seed, and of these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people."
verse 8. But this Holy Spirit, but by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices and are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Okay? So he's dealing here with the, with the old system of worship, explaining it in detail. But then he turns in verse 11 and he says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purifying our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, so this is the, this is the kinds of things that the author of Hebrews is, is arguing. And so then he gets to chapter 10 and verse 19 after this significant argument, and he says, therefore, brothers. Okay, based on the arguments I've given already, He's going to move into then to the, the exhortation. And he references them as brothers, as those who have embraced Christ and no longer are serving the system of, of Judaism. So he says, therefore, brothers, and then he gives these two foundational truths. The first is this, that the believer can confidently approach God based on the finished work of Christ. Okay, that's the first foundational truth he gives. The believer can confidently approach God based on the finished work of Christ. He says this in verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Sometimes that word confidence in, in other translations is used as boldness. We have boldness to enter the holy places. Or one commentator uses the, the word authorization. Okay? So unlike the Old Covenant, where the priest would enter once a year into the, into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, well now, every believer has the authorization to confidently come before the throne of grace and have access to God. It's no longer reserved for the, for the high priest alone. And this verse, as you continue reading, it shows us the means by which all of this is possible. It says, by the blood of Jesus. So not the insufficient sacrifices of bulls and goats, but through the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we are granted access into the very throne room of God. He has opened, the verse says, verse 20 says, a new and living way through, the, through his flesh. And so the author is saying, since these things are true, brothers, let me exhort you in these ways. Okay, so that's foundational truth number one. He goes on to say foundational truth number two is this. The believer can confidently approach God because he has a high priest who continues to intercede on his behalf. And that's the focus of verse 21, right? The the second sense 
Right? He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, then in verse 21, he says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, okay, and here the interesting thing about this verse is, is in verses 19 and 20, Jesus is the sacrifice, and in, vice, in verse, verse 21, he is the sacrificer. He's the high priest who, who offers the sacrifice to grant us access to God. And now Jesus continues in his high priestly ministry interceding for us being the mediator between us and God. This is the point of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, when he says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the author says, Let us then with, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the author is saying these two realities, based on the finished work of Christ and based on his ongoing priestly ministry to intercede for us, well, since these things are true, brothers, then let me exhort you. Okay, and he's going to go on to give us then three exhortations. Notice the first one in verse 22. Exhortation number one is this. Since these realities are true, draw near with the assurance of a forgiven sinner. Draw near with the assurance of a forgiven sinner. Right, look at verse 22. Again, he says this, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I don't know about you, but when I begin to wander from Christ and start to drift in my walk, I feel like I need to clean myself up a bit before I come back and draw near to God. I feel like I have to get a few days in of consistent Bible reading and and no major sin before I can draw near and have a relationship with God. Now, I I know that I'm saved by grace, and it's not by works, but surprisingly, it's so easy to enter back into this kind of performance thinking. And I I don't think I'm the the only one, right? So even as recently as this past week, I I was thinking this way, right? So I was on vacation, and vacations, I don't know how they are for you, but they're not times of spiritual refreshment. Right? They're, they're, they're relaxing and refreshing, but, but there's no organization, there's no structure. So Bible reading, prayer gets, gets cut out. You're, you're with your kids, which they say vacation is just watching your kids in, a, in another city. And there's a sense in which, you know, that's kind of true. So that's not that relaxing either, you know. Um, and then you're with your family more than you normally are, and that creates extra added stress and, and tension, right? So near the end of my, my break, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, I, I, I need to clean myself up a bit. Even I'm thinking this way, I need to clean myself up a bit, get a few days of Bible reading and a few days of patience before, before I come back and draw near to God. So then at the end of the break, I, I come to this passage. And, and the passage is emphasizing this truth. Draw near with the full assurance of a forgiven sinner. You don't clean yourself up first because Christ has already cleaned you up. 
He has already created the access for you to draw near with full assurance. Notice the passage doesn't say, draw near as one who's doing pretty well on your own. That's not what it says. It says, because Christ has provided access to God, then, then brothers, draw near. So here's these believers in Hebrews. They're tempted to throw in the towel. They're tempted to quit and forsake Christianity. And the author's saying, no, 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 no. Draw near because Christ has done everything necessary for you to have this close relationship with God, for you to have this access. Now, these are beautiful words, are they not? Because it's, it's often that sin and guilt keeps us from drawing near to God. I'm reminded of the, the words of the hymn before the throne of God above. The second verse says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, okay, I could believe his lie, but, but it says, says, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I was busy this morning, so I forgot to add this statement in from Pilgrim's Progress. But there's a scene in, in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is accused, and the accuser is accusing him of, of all these things that are wrong with him. And Christian admits, everything you said is true. But I have a great high priest who has interceded for me and taken care of all these weaknesses. So he has paved the way for us to come to God and draw near to him. I use this illustration often because I think it's helpful. But you remember the hymn, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy, where the third verse says, Let not conscience make you linger or hold back. And then it says this, Nor of fitness fondly dream." All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, I think you need to lose a little bit of weight before you come back for your next appointment. And you're like, well, I guess I'm not going to see that guy again. <laughs> right? Because i got to clean myself up in order to come and, and get his help. But that's not how it works with God. With God, Christ has already done everything necessary. So, brothers and sisters, it's for you and me to just draw near. To come with full assurance, not, not hesitantly, not cautiously, not as a child who's been disciplined and he's trying to gauge the relationship with his parents, but to come with one, as one who is accepted. Do we come in repentance? Absolutely. We don't clean ourselves up, though, to come to God. He is the one who, who grants us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So that's the first exhortation he gives in this passage. Based on the finished work of Christ and his priestly ministry, we are to draw near at, with the assurance of a forgiven sinner. Exhortation number two will be quicker than the first one, but he says this, hold fast to the hope promised by a faithful God. So your exhortation number two is, is in verse 23, and you see the words, let us again. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay? The word hope here is a reference, and, and really throughout Hebrews, is a reference to an eschatological hope that, that the, the promises that are coming through Christ. And he's saying, because of the finished work in Christ, this hope for you is secure. So hold on to it, brothers. Don't forsake it. Don't abandon it. And he, and he uses this word, don't, don't waver. 
Don't shake, don't falter as you hold on to this hope because this was the context that was taking place in, in this book. Some of the believers were, were wavering in their holding on to this hope that they had in Christ. And even worse, some were letting go altogether. And so the author is exhorting them to hold on to this hope and, and he wants them to do this. Recognize that the hope is as sure as the one who has promised it. That's why he says in this verse, he who promised is faithful. So as sure as God is faithful, our hope will be completed at the day of Christ. So that's the first two exhortations, right? The first exhortation and the second exhortation, they're, they're personal in nature. Okay, there's something that we do. We, we, we draw near, we, we, we hold fast. But the third exhortation is different. The third exhortation involves then turning to the brothers and sisters around us and encouraging them to draw near and hold fast as well, right? So the image in my mind is one of a rope. So if I draw near, I'm, I'm pulling myself near to God. And the expression, the second exhortation is, is to hold fast and not let go. And then the third exhortation is really to turn to our fellow believers and say, hold on to the rope as well. Let's continue to do this and draw near to, to Christ together. So the third exhortation is, is I've worded it like this. Encourage one another as you look for the Lord's return. Okay, notice verses 24 and 25. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, it's interesting in verse 24 that the author uses, he doesn't just say, stir up one another to love and good works. What does he say before that? He says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word consider is this idea of of be thoughtful, stop and contemplate, and give thought to how you might stir up one another to love and good works. Notice there's an intentionality to it. There's to be an intentionality with the way we think about encouraging one another toward love and good works. And then he also uses this word, which I think is interesting. He says, stir up. In the ESV, it's stir up, but in other translations, it's the word how to provoke one another to love and good works, or how to stimulate one another to love and good works. In, in essence, it's this. It's an action that elicits a response. So we were traveling in the car, our family, this week, and I was startled when my daughter yells out, ow, don't bite me, at one of her brothers. Now, not only was I startled, but I was also surprised because both of these boys were strapped into a car seat and had no ability in and of themselves to get out and to bite their sister. Unless there was an arm that reached over to try to tickle them underneath the chin, which you can imagine is exactly what happened. And then it's, a, it's, a, it's an action that elicits a response or provokes her, her brothers. Now, in, in this verse... He's using the word provoke in a positive sense. So we're to give thought, 
to how we might provoke our brothers and sisters to love and good works, how we might stir up our fellow believers to, to love and greater obedience. Now, in our minds, unfortunately, there's often a break between verses 24 and 25. But notice that, that in the original text, there would have been no break between verses 24 and 25, and so it would, it would read like this, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, and then he, verse 25 modifies verse 24. In fact, there are, are two ideas here that modify this, this verse. There's a negative idea and a positive idea. So he says in verse 24, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then he's going to give two descriptive phrases. Not like this, but like this. So stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So verse 25 describes how we are to stir one another up to love and good works. We're not to neglect the gathering, and we are to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Now the term neglect in verse 25 I think is a bit too gentle. Don't neglect the, the, the meeting together. Because I think the, neglect, the idea of neglect is maybe just a little too casual in our minds. So if my wife sends me to the grocery store with a list of items to purchase and I come back and I say I neglected to get milk, it's not that big of a deal. The, the way we use neglected in terms of, it's, like, well, it's, just, it's just a duty that we omitted, Okay. But the word here, neglect, is, is stronger in, in the Scriptures. That's why some translations have it as don't forsake the assembling together, or, or the word is also used as dessert, not like sugar and spice, two S's, but, but dessert as in just one S, okay? Second um, Timothy 4, verse 10, when Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has forsaken me or deserted me. That's the same word here that's taking place in, in Hebrews chapter 10, 25, that there is a, there's a forsaking taking place. Apparently, some in the church were, were forsaking the regular gathering and failing to fulfill their responsibility to their brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And it wasn't just a hypothetical situation because Paul says this was the habit of some uh, not Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews says, this was the habit of, of some. And you can see how this would happen, right? Persecution's increasing. People are going to prison. Things are becoming very difficult. And so meeting together was a risky endeavor. And so people started to, to pull away from their responsibility to regularly gather as believers. But here's the reality. Community encouragement and love and good works can scarcely occur if believers cease to meet with one another. Now, the text goes on, and, and the author highlights the urgent nature of this encouragement. Right? He says in the, in the, in the positive exhortation, verse 25, he says this, and encouraging one another, and he says this, all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
So as Christ's return gets closer, as things proceed from bad to worse, this mutual encouragement is only going to be more and more necessary. And I think we feel that to some extent in our lives. As you live your life in a context where the world is becoming increasingly more hostile to the gospel, you have an increasing need for the mutual edification of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Like all the more, Paul says, as you see that day drawing near, well, then you encourage more and more, and you don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, let's pause for a moment here, and let's go back to our definition of, of church membership. Okay, it's a formal relationship where the church uh, affirms the Christian's profession of faith, but notice the last two aspects. Number one, the church promises to oversee the Christian's life of discipleship. And the last one, and the Christian promises to regularly assemble with and submit to the church. Okay, now let's think about that particular idea. When I teach a membership class, I will often ask those in the class if they can sum up the idea of membership in one word. And it's an unfair question because there are lots of words that would sum up the idea of membership. And so I usually get answers like this. Well, membership means commitment or membership means service or or relationship or belonging. And those are all good answers, but the answer I'm looking for is this word. It's the word accountability. In the membership of the local church, the, the local church is promising to give accountability and exercise accountability over, over the, the Christian. And the Christian is signing up for that accountability. And one of the chief ways we receive the accountability and the church exercises their accountability is through regularly gathering at the services of the church. Now, the reason I think Hebrews is helpful is because Hebrews informs us both of the need for accountability and the solution. Okay, so, so if you would, would turn back to our scripture reading in, in Hebrews chapter 3, and I want to tie some passages together. Hebrews chapter 3 and verses, well, we'll start in verse 12. And and here's the warning in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay? Now, this this is you and me in verse 12. We are tempted. We are often deceived, and we are in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's just this morning. This is every day this takes place in our lives. Now, we'd like to give the impression that we're more spiritually stable than we are, okay? We'd like to give the impression that we've got everything together. Often, we're shocked when when those who once walked with us 
no longer walked with us, walk with us because they have, they have pursued a life of, of sin or they've been deceived or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And, and, and we're, we're, we're surprised at this. But we shouldn't be surprised because we know our own heart and we know what the Scriptures say that, of what can and does happen. So if Hebrews teaches us anything, it's that we need the accountability of the local church. We need the accountability of our, our fellow members. But notice that Hebrews also provides the solution for the temptations that we face. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the solution that, that Hebrews 3 puts up here is the exhortation and encouragement of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now take this passage in chapter 3 and tie it together with the passage in chapter 10. One of the primary ways we receive this encouragement and give this encouragement is done through consistently gathering as brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't happen apart from it doesn't happen effectively apart from the regular gatherings of Christ, but it happens when the church gathers. See, there is a spiritual danger when we start to drift away from the body of Christ. As the old expression goes, lone rangers are dead rangers. Now, in my 16 years here at Maranatha, one of the things I have observed is, is this. Regular attendance in the local church does not necessarily equal spiritual health. Okay, there are plenty of examples of, of hypocrites in the body of Christ, and, and, and many hypocrites attend the church faithfully. Okay, so, so regular attendance does not necessarily equate with doing well spiritually. But a lack of regular attendance is almost always an indication that one is struggling spiritually. I mean, there's probably some exceptions here, but, but, but on the whole, a lack of regular attendance is almost always an indication that something is not right spiritually. Now, I say this because I think it's the spirit of, of Hebrews chapter 10, but I say this for two reasons. Number one, so that those who attend irregularly, they might end the charade. Like, we, we know what's going on. Don't try to pretend. We know that irregular attendance is, is often an indication that things are not going well in your, in your life spiritually. But I also say this, so that those who are faithful and regular attenders might understand the spiritual danger of not attending faithfully. It's not simply that some people choose to attend more often and some people choose to attend less often. No, it's that those who attend less are in more danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because they lack the frequent and necessary contact with the body of Christ. And we live in a day that is low on commitment. If people are getting married today at all, they don't remain committed to it. They walk away from spouses, so easily walk away from children, leaving them with a different spouse. 
They walk away from jobs. They walk away from relationships. And if this is the air of the culture, and this is the air the culture breathes, it's not surprising then that it would, it would be breathed by some in the church as well. And so people don't take their commitment to church very seriously either. It's not common for members to attend one service a week, maybe two times a month. And the worst part about it is they might be okay with this level of commitment. And for the last several decades, the, the megachurch has been selling this message. Come as you are, there are no expectations. Well, when that's the idea of church, then that's going to create a, a culture where commitment is very low. But this idea, is, it's, it's foreign to the New Testament, right? Believers in the New Testament, they have a, a, a duty. They have an obligation, and an expectation to gather regularly, to be fed, to worship, to encourage their brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not looking to lower expectations. We're looking to raise expectations for disciples of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing unbiblical about talking about obligations in terms of our duty and our responsibility to be a part of the church on a regular basis. It's part of what our obedience, our life of obedience to Christ looks like. Now, there's a second observation that I've made in my time here. I think it's this, that it's impossible to fulfill all that the Scriptures call us to do in just one service per week. So we have multiple gatherings, multiple points of of contact. We have Sunday school and adult Bible fellowships because we need to grow in our knowledge of the Word. We gather on Sunday mornings because we we want to, to worship the Lord together and give Him the praise that is due. And we meet again on Sunday nights for for fellowship and, and deeper, stronger relationships. And we even meet on Wednesdays for, for, for prayer together. And the more you gather, the more opportunities you have to both give encouragement and to receive encouragement in the body of Christ. So here's how I want you to think about your attendance as a member at Maranatha. Unless I'm providentially hindered, I make it a priority to regularly gather with my church family. Okay, certainly there are providential hindrances, sometimes health, sometimes military, sometimes vacations. But unless I'm providentially hindered, I make it a priority to gather with my church family. Why? Because my soul needs it. And because my fellow brothers need me to pour into them. And it encourages me, and it encourages my fellow members when I'm, when I'm present. And my pastors are encouraged when I'm present. And frankly, there's nothing more important than to gather with God's people, to be strengthened spiritually, and to encourage one another. You know, Christ doesn't have a different plan than the church. Right? It's not like the church is like a plan, but then there are other plans. No, Christ's intent to work and to build up uh, and advance the, the, the cause of, of Christ is, is, is the church. Right? This is the pattern, and we'll come into this next week as we talk about what a local church is, but this is the pattern of the New Testament. They get saved, 
They get added and placed in the body of Christ, and that's where they live out their Christian community. Maybe you've been to California, and you have seen the sequoia or redwood forests. Anybody here who have done it? Okay, one, two, three, all right, four. Um, They are enormous trees, like nothing that I've seen before. They grow to be about 250, 300 feet tall, and they can have a circumference of, of close to 100 feet. So there's images of people trying to hug them, but they come nowhere near uh, getting their arms around the tree. They're just, just massive. But it might surprise you to know that these trees have a root system of only 6 to 12 feet deep. If you think that's a case, you would think the wind would just blow one of these trees right over because of a lack of depth in their root system. But they spread in their width, and they link and intertwine with the root system of the other sequoias around them. So their strength is, is not so much in their depth, but it's in their connectivity. And that's what supports them. And this is how God has ordained the body of Christ. We in and of ourselves are unstable and frankly unimpressive people. But when we gather and we gather regularly, well, there is strength in numbers. And this is how God chooses to build us up in the faith through this interconnectedness. And this is what membership in a local church looks like. So we submit to, bring ourselves under the care of the church, and we faithfully attend so that we might encourage and be encouraged. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage, and we're thankful for the finished work of Christ who has enabled all of this. We're thankful for the access we have to you because of Christ interceding on our behalf. These are glorious truths, but they're not just glorious truths to rejoice in. They're glorious truths to do something with. So, Lord, it's our desire to draw near to you. Draw near to you in full assurance of people who have been accepted. And, Lord, we want to hold fast. We don't want to waver. We want to be faithful. And the means by which we do this is encouraging one another through our consistent gathering. So, Lord, help us to be faithful to our duties so that you might be glorified and we might be built up. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.